welcome to the Podluck, serving up bite-sized tastes of the best theology. I'm your host, Megan Westra. Grab a plate and let's dig in. Thank you so much for joining us again for another episode of The Podluck. We are continuing to work our way through the book of Matthew. We had two weeks on the genealogy, so hopefully you were able to gain some insights into that passage. It's so easy to skip over, um, and you really should not skip it over. Um, We are going to move on, though, this week. We will not do weeks at nauseum on the genealogy. Two weeks is enough, but we are still in chapter one. Um, so you should just know that there's a few more verses just kind of tacked on here at the end of chapter one that I wanted us to make sure that we deal with. Uh, these are the equivalent of Matthew's like Christmas narrative or nativity narrative. So most often if you grew up attending some sort of church or religious service, um, or even if you didn't, uh, maybe you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Uh, usually we hear Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. Um, it came to pass in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, right? You can see Linus walk into the middle of the stage and say, lights, please, right? So many of us have heard that. Matthew's narrative is much shorter, and it centers on Joseph. And there's also some important things for us to draw out in that. So before we move on to chapter two, I want to give a little attention to that. So if you need to, feel free to like bust out your Christmas tree one more time. I'm with that judge. Uh, Maybe grab yourself some cookies or some hot chocolate. You know, whatever, whatever you need to get yourself in the, in the Christmas spirit, the Christmas mood, Um, even though as I'm recording this, it's the the middle of March. You you do what you need to do. It's okay. Um, but we are going to be looking here at the end of Matthew 1. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child by, from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took her as his wife. But he had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son and named him Jesus. So that brings us to the end of chapter 1. And there's a few things going on here. And there's a few things that we could get really, really hung up on. 
and debate the finer points of, and I think that to do so would be missing the point of this passage. Um, The first thing I want us to notice is that there just continue to be so many connections to things that are happening in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Christian Old Testament. There's another connection to Tamar, who was mentioned in the genealogy. Joseph is essentially kind of put in the same position that Tamar's father-in-law was, Judah. See, Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. Uh, Judah is is one of the you know patriarchs in, in Israel, one of the 12 tribes. And her first husband died. And the way that the culture worked was that then she would marry the brother and the first son born would carry on his brother's name, his brother's legacy, and so on and so forth. But two sons died, the first one she was married to, and then the second one as well. And Judah had a, a younger son who wasn't old enough to be married yet. And Tamar went home to kind of wait for that third son to become old enough, which you know sounds really bizarre um, in 2021, but this is the way that the culture worked. Except for Judah was afraid that his youngest son would die too, that Tamar was somehow cursed. And so he decided he wouldn't give his youngest son in marriage. This would have put Tamar in a horrible position, both in the culture and society, her standing, but also financially and physically. The way that women were provided for was completely patriarchal. If you didn't have a husband or a father or sons to take care of you, then you were kind of out of luck. And so Tamar dresses up and seduces her former father-in-law and gets pregnant by him in order to kind of circumvent the system to say, no, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is unjust and I will find a way to make it because what you're doing doesn't honor God. And so then Judah was faced with this question of there's this woman who's pregnant and I don't know how, what do I do? Do I, you know, the law says that I could, could have her killed even. And Joseph is faced with not such a different position. Mary turns up pregnant and Joseph is like, wait a minute, how did that happen? So once again, we we kind of get pulled back toward other stories where God works in mysterious ways, where God works through maybe the, the people that we discredited or that people whisper about in corners and in hushed voices. It also draws us back to other extraordinary conceptions like Isaac. So you have Abraham and Sarah who God calls them to leave their homeland and their family and promises to make them into a great nation, except for Abraham and Sarah are very, very old and barren. And after many years and wanderings through the wilderness and And all of that, Sarah finally has a son, Isaac. Or an extraordinary conception like Samuel, where you have um, a 
family going up to worship every year and the wife just going in and praying until she's weeping and you have the the priest accusing her of being drunk because she's so distraught on the floor and she says, no, I'm, I'm barren and I I want to have a son and if God gives me a son, then I will give my son back over to God's service and and she conceives and Samuel is born. Samuel who becomes a prophet who uh, eventually anoints King David. So all of this is going on when Matthew starts talking about an incredible conception. A woman turning up pregnant who there, there shouldn't be any way that she is. And in the minds and the imaginations of Matthew's original audience, this would not have been any sort of bridge to cross for them. It'd be kind of like if you started to hear the Imperial March, dun, 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 right? Immediately you're thinking Darth Vader and Star Wars and Luke Skywalker and entire plot lines may come to your mind if you grew up watching those movies. And if you didn't, then I'm really, really sorry that your childhood was terrible. There are things that we can all think of that if we hear certain songs or if people say certain phrases, we're immediately pulled back into our favorite stories, whether they're music or books or movies or operas. That's what Matthew's doing here for his readers. He's leaving clues in the ways that he's writing this story, in the words he's choosing to use, saying like, hey, look, look at the connections. Look for the ways that God has moved in the past. Be careful who you say God can't move through or what situations seem like they're just, you know, outside of God's reach. Now, whether or not Mary was a virgin until the birth of Christ or a virgin for her whole life, or maybe it wasn't a virgin birth at all, those are things that sometimes we like to get all wound up on debates about, uh, particularly if you end up in theological or biblical studies kind of circles. People like to parse out the words, you know, technically the Hebrew word alma that is used um, in in transliterations of this passage or the, the prophetic literature that the author of Matthew refers to in, in Isaiah. Alma just means young woman and not necessarily virgin, but the Greek transliteration that's used in the Septuagint, which is the manuscript that English translations have come from that was written in Greek, well, that was probably virgin, although not 100%. You, know, you can get really wrapped up in those debates. I don't think that they serve us well, though. Here's what I think is important for us to take away here. That God is moving in ways that are both familiar, as Matthew hearkens us back to Tamar, to Isaac, to Samuel, but in also ways that we are continually surprised. And we are being invited by the gospel writer to consider that our identities are determined more by the kinds of people we seek to be than by our bloodlines, as Dr. Michael Joseph Brown observes with this passage. That maybe faithfulness 
has to do with the kind of people that we seek to be and not by our pedigree, who our parents were, how we came into this world, or the stories that people told surrounding our birth. And when we get hung up on trying to decide, well, was it it really a virgin birth? How long was Mary a virgin for? And I just don't know that that serves us well in the long run. The passage goes on, and the author talks about how the angel tells Joseph to name the son Jesus, which is the same root as Joshua. So again, we're being pulled back into another narrative. It brings us back into the time when Israel was leaving Egypt. They were coming out of these years and years and years of enslavement and God leading them into a promised land. It means God saves, which was never imagined as an exclusively spiritual truth. We have this understanding of salvation in the United States and particularly in white Christian traditions and and especially so in ones that are evangelical or evangelical adjacent. But spiritual salvation, that my soul has been saved, is the most important thing. But that's so far removed from anything that Matthew would have even been able to imagine. Salvation is inherently about the body and the community and holistic flourishing. Joshua brings God's people into the promised land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey and where there is abundance and provision for the people. And the angel telling Joseph, your child will be named Jesus, the same root as Joshua. God saves. This child is for the freedom and flourishing Salvation for the body, for the community, for the people, for the world. All things set right. Not just so that your soul can go to heaven when you die. The final thing that I want us to observe from this little piece of chapter 1 is that Matthew is already priming us for what's coming ahead later on in the gospel. So oftentimes, if you're trying to communicate something, you'll kind of leave breadcrumbs along the way, right? You're trying to tell your audience what you want them to know before you actually tell them, right? And the best communicators do this flawlessly. It's like that childhood story of Hansel and Gretel, Uh, where there's little breadcrumbs that they leave through the forest and it helps them get to or from the, the, the house made of candy. It's been a while since I read the story. I think that they leave the breadcrumbs. I don't know if they actually use them, but you get where I'm going with it. The best communicators are leaving breadcrumbs throughout their work that say like, no, 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 this is the whole thing. This is where we're going. This is the point that I'm trying to get across. Later on in Matthew, in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7, roughly, there's this formula that Jesus uses when he's preaching that sermon. He says, you have heard it said, and then he fills in some common saying, some common teaching, and then he 
continues and says, but I say to you, and then he kind of flips whatever it was on its head or tweaks it a little bit or takes it deeper. So one example would be like, you have heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say to you, and he begins to teach the people that perhaps violence isn't the only way. You've heard it said, but I say to you. So at the heart of so much of Matthew's gospel is this question of righteousness. Like, what does it mean to be somebody who is faithful to God and to what God is doing in the world? What does righteousness actually look like? And Joseph is described here as a righteous man. He probably you know, tried to do the right thing all the time. He was probably very aware of not just the letter of the law, what was required of him, but also like just, you know, what makes you look good as a person, right? Like we all know the people who like just follow the rules and like you can never really like fault them for their behaviors because they're not technically doing wrong. They're just kind of scummy people and you don't really appreciate being around them and you wouldn't describe them as being particularly like nice or good or wholesome. And then we also know those people who like, yeah, they they mostly like do what's what's right, but but man, they're good people. And even if they're like technically like maybe not doing the right thing or following the the law or following the rules of the situation, well, it's because the rule might be wrong or because they used discernment and they figured out that that's not what this situation needs. And so Joseph is a righteous man. He probably is, you know, somewhere mixed in with those things. He knows what the law says. And the law gives him permission to to do away with Mary, to leave her, to publicly shame her. There's a lot of leeway. And and Joseph decides because he's the kind of guy that is, is a good person, not just, well, what can I legally do? He's just gonna just gonna divorce Mary quietly just end things quietly and move on. And maybe, you know, maybe she can go to a different town or something and, and move on with her life and, and still find a a good path. He doesn't want to shame her or bring her any sort of public disgrace, even though that was certainly well within what he could have sought. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and, and the angel comes to Joseph in this dream and, and kind of poses that sort of question to him. Like, you've heard it said that you, you're allowed certainly to divorce this woman and, and send her away quietly and not subject her to public humiliation and that that would make you a, a really good person. But I'm telling you, this is from the Lord. And Righteousness, faithfulness in this instance looks like something completely different than what you have an imagination for. Yeah. 
that's the path that Matthew is starting to set us on. That what our ideas of faithfulness or righteousness are, are formed by the culture around us, by the religious institutions that formed us, but that the boundaries of our imagination are not necessarily the same ones that God has. Once again, to reiterate that quote from Dr. Michael Joseph Brown, our identities are determined more by the kind of people we seek to be than by our bloodlines. The kind of people we seek to be, not who our families are, not the community that formed us, the people who raised us, the teachings that we received in our youth. Who are we seeking to be now? And are we people who are seeking to bring that liberating, flourishing life God saves that Jesus calls us into. So that's where this passage starts to point us. Asking these questions of, especially in times when change is occurring, when things are not going the way we anticipated, what does faithfulness look like now, today? And Maybe we've heard it said one way, but God is inviting us to consider something new. Thanks so much again for tuning into the podluck today. Um, We will be over on Patreon on Friday. There's Uh, what we're going to call the pit stop. Um, Thanks so much to uh, Aylin for um, recommending that name, kind of riffing on the Matthew road trip um, analogy that uh, Reverend Elisa and I were working with last week. Uh, We have Friday pit stops or Friday rest stops um, over on Patreon where I do some centering, uh, like almost guided meditation, guided prayer sort of, exercise uh, based around the content of this episode. So if you are interested in that and just kind of sitting with this passage a little bit more and letting it do some formational work in you, um, you can head over to Patreon that's available to patrons on all levels of support. So um, you can head over there. The link is in the show notes. And as always, if you are enjoying what we are doing on this season of the Podluck, then please take time to rate and review so that other people can find the Podluck more easily. Um, And shout us out on social media. I love seeing what you are thinking, how you are engaging with the episodes. Um, So make sure that you shout us out on Twitter or Instagram or whatever social platforms you use. You can shout us out on TikTok. I don't use TikTok. Maybe one day I will figure that out. But, you know, wherever you're at online, feel free to share um, and leave a rating or review. We're at 38 ratings and reviews now. I think we ticked up by another one this week. So that's exciting. Trying to get to 50. 
really appreciate the time that you take. Um, and also just a moment of gratitude. We got a puppy over the weekend and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to make it through all of this recording without her barking. And I did. So that's exciting. And I'm grateful for that. All right. That's all I have for you tonight. As always, I'm your host, Megan Westra. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Podluck. Next time, grab a plate and we'll dig in again.